I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Origins of the Modern Public, and a new idea, privacy. I believe that the category of privacy itself is a modern invention, and the fundamental transformation that occurs in the early modern period is that privation turns into privacy. The idea of being away from the public becomes a positive value in itself. The public, as we think of it today, is, in many ways, a private affair. What we call public opinion is actually made up of a whole lot of private opinions. At the theater or the movies, we assemble together in public, but as an expression of our private choices. The economic decisions that shape our public world rest mostly in private hands. You can't really understand the modern public, in other words, without understanding how we got to our modern sense of the private. How that sense developed is our subject in today's program. It continues David Cayley's series, The Origins of the Modern Public. Here's David Cayley. In the first broadcast of this series, historian Vera Keller observed that the study of history is justified not because we will otherwise be doomed to repeat it, as has sometimes been said, but because we will otherwise be doomed to continue it. She went on to say that what she thinks we are continuing today is the world that was first imagined in the 16th and 17th centuries, the early modern period, scholars now tend to call it. It was then that the foundations of the modern world were laid, and thoughts that now seem too obvious to question were thought for the first time. One of the ideas that we have inherited from this period is the changed conception of the public that I have been exploring in these programs. In the 16th century, the term public was still monopolized by those who could claim to be the sanctioned rulers of a social order ordained by God. But by the 18th century, it meant what it means to us today, combinations of individual citizens, the general public, the literary public, what have you. In between lies a change in what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. By this he means our largest sense of how things are, the imaginative vision or atmosphere within which our ideas and our ways of doing things make sense. Most of today's program will be about one part of this new imaginary, privacy. But I'd like to begin with some general observations Charles Taylor made on ideas the year after his book Modern Social Imaginaries was published in 2004. He was talking to me about how the emergence of new institutions like democracy makes sense only against the larger background of the social imaginary. The idea is to get what is going on in people's culture, or let's say self-understanding, when this kind of transition comes. By that I mean not your idiosyncratic or my idiosyncratic self-understanding. I mean the self-understanding that is shared in societies, and the gradual change in which accompanies and makes possible some of these big institutional changes. Right? I mean, for instance, we live in a modern democracy, and they have, we have the idea that we can decide things by election. Right? And now there's two big differences here in the way lots of societies have seen themselves in history. For one, this does give the idea, I mean, it makes sense against the background of an idea, that a social decision can be kind of concatenated out of individual decisions. You vote your way, I vote my way she, she, they, and we add it all together, and it becomes the collective decision. We elect this government or we pass this referendum. And the notion is here that quite individual decisions can be taken even off in the booth, and we concatenate them together, and that counts as a collective decision. Now, in lots of societies in the world, more what we say traditional societies, that would have seemed crazy. You see in certain societies that when the elders or the whole tribe discuss, they carefully avoid at the beginning putting themselves in concrete in one or other 
possible position. They talk around until they can see that maybe there's some consensus that can be seen to emerge, and then they gradually get on side with that consensus. The idea that you could actually have a society in which different parties hive off and say, you know, we want this, and you are terrible to want the opposite, and vice versa, and then if somehow it could arrive at a decision, this would seem to be a formula for social civil war, I mean, for social disruption, right? So you have to have a very different idea of how we as people, as individual people, relate to our society, how we relate to our history, how we relate to social change, in order for this, this to us, obvious legitimacy idea to make sense. Now, when you dig deeper, what is it that makes that make sense to us? And then you begin to see that almost all Western pre-modern notions of society assume really that there was some kind of order already there, and each one of us has his or her place in this order, right? So <clears throat> you aren't an individual agent in society except by occupying a slot. You're the king, you're one of the leaders, one of his advisors, or you're a lowly peasant. You have your place. And the order is something that isn't up for grabs. It's, it's there already. You have to operate within that. So this occupying a certain role as the primary fact, somehow that gave way to the way any average citizen in Toronto or Montreal would understand today is something like this. Societies are made up because individuals come together. I mean, maybe they don't necessarily come together at one moment. Maybe they come together by immigration from different parts of the world, but they all more or less agree that we're going to be part of this society. So the society is made up of individuals who primarily, before they join it, as it were, don't have a role. They aren't defined by their role. They're defined by something else. And in order to make decisions, we have to have some kind of majority rule and some kind of rules about how to extract the majority. And so from then on, you know, given a lot of detail of the history and the, and the Constitution, it follows that the kind of way we make our decisions in elections make sense, right? So we had to move from this kind of background understanding that no one challenged before of, let's say, a law since time out of mind and a place of each of us within it, this modern idea, which is much more, let's say, artificialist. I mean, the states are things that are made at a certain point. At a certain point in history, we sat down or somebody sat down and decided anew what the whole thing was going to be about, right? And this is very, it's just fascinating to follow this in Western history because what we think of as the revolutionary tradition that helped to found modern democracy, you know, the English Civil War, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and all the <clears throat> other events since then, it looks like a kind of seamless development towards us. But a fantastic, if you like, intellectual revolution, a revolution in understanding occurred in the middle of that. Because the early phases of this were all based on the idea of the ancient constitution, the law that is there since time out of mind. The English Parliament rebelled against Charles I in the name of the ancient constitution. Right? the way it's always been, and Charles has usurped power. The American revolutionaries rebelled against Westminster in the name of the rights of Englishmen that were being violated by the British Crown and the British Parliament. What's interesting is that in the middle of that operation, something, a kind of reversal happens. And when the Americans, after the war, come to setting up a constitution, they have an actual constitutional moment in which they see that not as the realization of an old law that has been violated, but as the founding of an actual new state. We the people. So they, they put the Constitution, as it were, put into a speech act in the mouth of this new agency, we the people of the United States, in order to make a more perfect union, etc., etc. That is a new moment in history. And it you can see the development of what I'm calling the social imaginary, the kind of generally shared understanding of what we are in as members of society. We can see that evolving, at least among elites in the 18th century, preparing this moment of the overturn. And then, of course, when you got to the French Revolution, at a certain moment, the French people, again, this idea of the collective agency, which never existed before, but now exists as an agency, starts anew such a 
radical idea of starting anew that the early French Republic started the calendar over again, right? 1792, August 1792, when they set up the Republic, became the beginning of year one. <laughs> it didn't, didn't last. It lasted you know, only about 10, 10 years, but they had this whole idea of a new calendar, really a real idea of radical new beginning. According to Charles Taylor, the French and the American revolutions both dramatically reversed fields, beginning as assertions of traditional rights, but going on to proclaim an entirely new order. But this new order, and the new imaginary within which it made sense, had been in preparation for a long time. One of its keystones was a new sense of privacy and of the value of private existence. The word privacy comes from the same root as the word privation. And at the beginning of the modern age, privacy generally meant whatever was deprived of the quality of publicness. In Shakespeare's As You Like It, the clown Touchstone, in exile from the court, is asked how he likes the shepherd's life he is now living. In respect that it is solitary, he replies, I like it very well, but in respect that it is private, it is a very vile life. It's vile for Touchstone because it's obscure. It lacks the publicity that lights up existence at the court. Privacy is defined by what it is not. How privacy took on a positive valuation and became a good in itself is the story that is told in literary scholar Michael McKeon's ambitious book, The Secret History of Domesticity, Public, Private, and the Division of Knowledge. McKeon is professor of English at Rutgers University in New Jersey, where I called on him recently. He told me that he thinks people everywhere and at all times must distinguish in some way between public and private. How could they not? But that modern Western civilization was unique in trying to actually pull apart these two realities and assign them to separate spheres. I imagine all cultures have some sense of the difference between the public and the private, even though they construe them in different ways. But my understanding is that until the beginning of the modern period, they're seen as distinct but not really separable. That is, they're part of a more general understanding of how, how things work, so that you can't really detach one from the other in thinking about what their significance might be. And, and that's what happens beginning in the 17th century. The conception of the private and privacy becomes separated out from that of the public and made more oppositional than it ever had been before, as you know, the modern way of thinking generally has it. Privacy is the opposite of publicness. Beyond that, though, I believe that the category of privacy itself is a modern invention and that when people talk about the realm of home life, for example, in earlier periods, they're not talking about privacy in the modern sense of the term. They're talking about um, the word that is, in some ways, its root, that is privation or deprivation. That is, being away from all the things that are most important, namely being in public debating large matters of, of state uh, with the men. And the fundamental transformation that occurs in the early modern period is that privation turns into privacy. I mean, that's not to say nobody ever thinks about being deprived anymore. But the idea of being away from the public becomes a positive value in itself, as indeed it is in the modern world. And private lives, down-to-earth, everyday common lives, are, by the end of the 18th century, seen to have as much importance and value as public ones, perhaps even more. Before the modern era, as Michael McKeon sees it, the private was distinct from the public. One could see the difference, but not really separable from it. It was secluded, you might say, within the public. The public, being identified with the whole, the good of all, still shone everywhere. And so, the idea of a private realm that was separate from and even opposed to the public could only develop 
McKeon argues, when the idea of what constituted the public began to change as well. The old sense of the public is essentially the state or whatever institutional framework is in place in order to, to run whatever the, you know, the community is that it's in charge of. The new kind of public that gets invented is a virtual public. And here my ideas uh, correspond a great deal to Charles Taylor's, to the idea of the, what he calls the social imaginary. Uh, he talks about, about the way in which a new virtual notion of the public develops, which is unique to the modern period. And what its virtuality entails is a kind of an openness, a sort of a porosity to unlimited numbers of private, actual private existences, so that one can conceive of the public now not according to an actual power that runs the country, but according to the modern notion of, well, you know, the public sphere public opinion, all of those public words that are so popular in the modern world that really have no actual referent. Public opinion, after all, is just what we take to be the sum, and in some ways the quantitative sum, of what everybody believes, sort of turned into an entity that we can then derive from polls and proclaim on television as being what the American people think. Modern publics are virtual, Michael McKeon says, because they are open, in his words, to an unlimited number of actual private existences. What this means, I think, is that the nature of the public can no longer be specified in advance. It will take whatever form private people decide from time to time to give it. What's new about this is not the exercise of imagination as such. There had been corporations, imaginary bodies, before modern times. The church was imagined as the body of Christ. Jurists spoke of the king's two bodies, his actual perishing mortal body and the undying body of the institution he represented. But these older forms of corporation, in McKeon's view, were crucially different from modern publics. The older corporations are seen as sort of given by powers that are above any individuals, either by God or, which in some cases is thought to be the same thing, by the state, as the monarch is the vicegerent of God. So this virtual entity is given from on high, whereas what goes on in the modern world is the recognition that what has been created has been created by us the idea of its existence from our own creativity is part and parcel of the idea itself. It especially attaches to the, the modern idea that individual people, as opposed to God, can be creative, which is, of course, a foundation for modern notions of art. But it also attaches to all sorts of well-known ideas like individualism and the freedom of the individual namely the capacity of individuals to, by themselves, but especially as a group, to conceive imaginatively a way of being that has a real application to everybody's existence. I think the easiest or, or the best example of this, of this modern conception, because of the contrast one feels between the old actual embodiment and the new virtual one, is the idea of the market the financial market, which of course has a real relevance to us these days more than it, it always does. But you know, in the old days, the market was a physical place where you brought your goods and other people understood that that place too is where they, they should bring their goods. But the market as we know it, the financial market, is completely made up. There is, there is no place that we go to to barter our stocks and bonds and the rest of it. There are mechanisms for doing it, but those mechanisms increasingly in information age are also virtual. Now, of course, we all still go to supermarkets. There's still markets in the old sense of the term, but that gives a sense of what is, what is virtual about these various kinds of public and the way in which their self-createdness distinguishes them from older ideas of corporation. 
The corporations of the Middle Ages were virtualities. You could neither see nor touch the king's immortal body. But they were seen as God-given mysteries rather than as human inventions. The thinkers of the 17th century began to treat the world as a human order. The difference can be clearly seen, Michael McKeon thinks, in the new theories of political sovereignty that were put forward. It's the difference between the Garden of Eden, where the law is received by Adam and Eve from God, on the one hand, and the, the great invention of political theory in the 17th century through Thomas Hobbes and then John Locke, the state of nature. It's a way of rationalizing a theory that is becoming more and more, to many people, the only one that explains how governments, how sovereignty becomes legitimate. That is, sovereignty is legitimate if it is the voice of all of the individuals, or at least enough of them to make a difference within the community. So the state of nature fiction is the idea that before government ever was thought of, we, or whoever our ancestors are, we all live in a state of nature. And for Hobbes, this is famously nasty, brutish, and short. For Locke, that's not really true. But for some similar reasons, he agrees that people in the state of nature come to realize at a certain point that they need to sacrifice some of their natural rights in order to create a government that will protect them from the aggressiveness of others. Thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke invented the state of nature and its inconveniences in order to explain why government is both necessary and legitimate. Government formerly had been seen as instituted by God. They imagined it as instituted by men for their own purposes. And this led them to speak for the first time of something that we take utterly for granted, but which had not previously existed, society. There were various ways of thinking about, you know, the commonwealth or the several estates and how they related to each other. But there was no, again, no virtual category that would take in everybody within a given polity or indeed everybody everywhere, as, as the, the largest sense of society would suggest. But the way in which the concept of society first emerged was by, as it were, being split off from the state. I mean, the state, I think, in, in earlier centuries, although different terms were used, nonetheless seemed adequate to express all of the collective, all of the gestures at collectivity that were felt to be necessary. Once the critique of especially monarchical notions of sovereignty began, people began to think that the state is not everything. The state does not have legitimacy entirely on its side. What it's doing is serving, if not utterly representing, something else, which is called civil society. And at first, the term was always used with civil in front of it. And that formulation in the 17th century just hung on. And what it expresses is the first stirrings of the belief that there is something beyond the unquestioned tacit authority of those who rule us. And so it's, it's also the first stage in transforming people who are simply political subjects and don't question their, their subjugation into people who are, who are subjects in a not entirely political way. Uh, I think the end point of this is the conception of subjectivity, which derives from the idea of being a political subject and therefore under the, the authority of some other entity, but finally emerges through a process of interiorization as the whole idea of civil society becomes more and more autonomous and distinct from the state, being a subject finally becomes being a subject for oneself. One of the first historians of civil society 
the Scots philosopher Adam Ferguson, writing in 1767, described his time as this age of separations. The phrase captures a lot of what Michael McKeon has been saying. Things formerly considered to be one and indivisible were being pulled apart into their components, and these components accorded at least a qualified independence. An example is the way in which British philosopher John Locke, writing at the end of the 17th century, attacks the theory of patriarchy. It's the notion that sovereignty derives from God, and it was given by God, first of all, to Adam. And Adam held sovereignty on the model of the father. That is to say, his sovereignty as a ruler is, first of all, his sovereignty within the household. And after the fall, and this perhaps would have been a consequence even if we had not fallen, the patriarchal trajectory of sovereignty just goes down to fathers in the household and to sovereigns in the state. So there's a strict analogy between the state and the family. What Locke wants to argue is that the whole category of sovereignty has to be broken up. It has to be subdivided. And indeed, different kinds of sovereignty have to be separated out from each other in order to understand their fundamental difference from each other. And, and the ones that he focuses on in particular are, first of all, sovereignty in the kingdom. Uh, which is different from the sovereignty of the father in the household, which is different, he goes on to say, from that of the husband with respect to the wife. And it's also different from that of the parent, whether husband or wife, and the children. So he's, sort of, he's taking this sort of unified notion of sovereignty, which is unified not only with respect to the state, but also somehow included the family. You know, it's all the same basic principle. And he's parsing it up into different, discrete, separate domains. It's a division of knowledge, which in more than one way is akin to the division of labor that already is going on in the capitalist countryside and then really gets going with the Industrial Revolution. Sovereignty, according to John Locke, has many subdivisions, each enjoying a certain independence. And this way of dividing up political and familial authority, Michael McKeon argues, mirrors the division of labor that is taking place in the countryside at the same time. Economic production, like sovereignty, is being broken up and differentiated. One could say that, um, that the capitalist revolution really begins with the transformation of the traditional notion of, of the household from a, a producing unit in which men and women are working more or less equally to provide subsistence for their own household, although a bit goes to the market. A transformation from that model on the one hand to what's called cottage industry or proto-industrialism, that is systems in which the household is still doing all the production, but more and more the production is, is being done not for the household itself, but for the market. Two, and this occurs in the 17th and 18th centuries, to the splitting off of the household from the workplace or the factory entirely. In other words, the creation of proto-factories. And this is a very useful because a very spatial way of thinking about how this aspect of the splitting off of the public from the private is achieved through the concrete developments of, of how economic production works. As production departs by stages from the household, the private separates from the public, resulting finally in the private home, which is exclusively a site of consumption. Another crucial separation of the private from the public is the establishment of the right to dispose of private property as one wishes. In England, this right was formalized only at the time of the Civil War, which was fought between 1642 and 1649. One effect of the Civil War in the 17th century, although really I think it began before that, was the undermining of the old feudal ideology, the old feudal system, of production in which it was understood that, um, at least theoretically, the lord, the overlord, is in effect the owner 
of all property, just as the king, once feudalism evolves into a kind of absolute mon monarchalism, just as the king also owns all property. And all the property is farmed by uh, people who hold it in trust from him. What happens in the 17th century is through economic adventure, through entrepreneurial ship, but also through an act which formally declares the end of feudal tenures. And what this means is that great landlords anyway no longer have to understand themselves as holding land in fief of their overlords, which means that they are now not conditional owners of the property, but absolute owners of it and can do anything they want with it. That contributes mightily to the development of capitalism in the countryside. It also, conceptually speaking, it separates out economics, economy, from politics. Because economy, for the first time, is no longer seen to be part and parcel of the sovereignty of the ruler. It's that which people do in their private capacities, which uh, is not or should not be controlled by the sovereign, although the sovereign will try very hard to control it. So the economy is one of the first kinds of human experience that is deemed private. Modernity, as Michael McKeon understands it, is the outcome of a series of separations. Civil society separates from the state, the economy from politics, the private from the public. But there is, in his view, a second logic at work as well, and that is what he calls explicitation. The unspoken and taken for granted is increasingly made explicit. What I mean by making explicit or explicitation is a state of mind that becomes more and more dominant in this period and which goes against uh, its opposite number, namely the tacit. Uh, which I associate with the tradition. Now, of course, you know, as, as you can see by now, to generalize in this schematic way about tradition versus modernity, tacit versus explicit, obviously um, it's, it's a heuristic device. I think the most suitable way of denominating modernity is the way that I, I do, and historians tend to agree with that. But clearly within the Middle Ages, one can find all sorts of developments that seem forerunners of what we're associating with modernity. And on the other hand, we can find elements of residual traditional culture that continue within modernity. So I just have to put in that caveat about yeah. the generalizations yeah. that I'm making. But basically, the argument about the tacit and the explicit is that what begins in the 17th century especially, although I suppose the Renaissance really has to be seen as the, the origin of it, is the will to raise tacit understanding about the way things are to the level of the explicit and therefore to begin to question it. To begin, first of all, just to think about it harder. I don't think the first impulse is to undermine tacit knowledge. But the more it goes on, I think the more an analytic understanding is brought to bear upon what had never been thoroughly thought about or questioned before. Questioning undermines aura. Heaven gives its glimpses, the poet Robert Frost says, only to those not in position to look too close. The king's supporters in England in the period before the Civil War of the 1640s often made the same point. I wish said one, that the sovereign power of the king might ever be kept in tacit veneration and not held in public examination. The authority of religion, likewise, rests on a tacit acceptance of certain mysteries. Closer and more curious reasoning about the divine, Michael McKeon suggests, is one of the sources of secularization. Secularization begins when cultures begin to give up their tacit acceptance of the way things are and begin to think about the nature of God in a way that connects God and his effects much more closely to all the variable things that happen within the world. 
this goes beyond theodicy. It goes beyond simply asking the question, how can there be evil in the world if, if God is good? Because it takes into account the plurality of religions. It takes into account the vulnerability of scripture, for example, to rational critique. This goes on increasingly in the 17th century. The critique of the notion of the Bible as the word of God simply because it's gone through so many translations, so many editions, so many human contributions to its authenticity that it's not to say God isn't responsible for it, but that we have to treat it like we do other books and subject it to analytic interpretation to understand what it means. So I think secularization is a good way of, of thinking about how the tacit becomes explicit. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Michael McKeon describes the modern world as the outcome of a process in which things once held indivisible get divided up, and things once tacitly accepted get spelled out. A habit of holistic thinking, in which a universal principle covers every case, and the sovereignty of God, the King, and the Father all have a common root, gives way to an analytical form of thinking, in which individual cases are what count. A scientific truth is a winnowing of many experimental instances. A democratic decision is a consequence of many individual private decisions. In this new way of thinking, the private is no longer a state of deprivation, a condition without significance because it is beneath the notice of the public world. It's the very foundation of the public world. Modern publics come into being as an expression of the will of private persons, and such publics cannot exist except as the manifestation of a fully achieved privacy. That what I am, I am in myself, and not as the subject or the creature of some larger whole from which I am inseparable. And that is what all the conceptual separations that McKeon thinks define modernity make possible. They allow the private to become a world in itself, and not just an obscure nook within the great world of public men and public doings. A lot of what Michael McKeon has said in this program has pertained to economy and to political theory, but he first came to the view that he argues in his Secret History of Domesticity through the study of literature. There he noticed that up until the modern era, Literature always concerns the great. Even genres that ostensibly deal with humble folk, like pastoral poetry, actually present allegories of the court. Parables of daily life in religious literature are used to illustrate the glory of God, not because daily life has value in itself. But what happens, McKeon thinks, is that the humble and the everyday eventually achieve their own significance. The example he uses is the genre from which he takes his title, the secret history. Secret histories originally were allegorical stories told by insiders about the doings of the great. The characters in the story were of interest only because of who and what they represented. But these secret histories then take on a life of their own, and their stories become interesting in themselves. One of the most brilliant exercises of this sort is a very long narrative by Afra Ben called Love Letters Between a Nobleman and His Sister. And it's a, an allegory, a political allegory in the sense I was just describing, in which we're given to understand that this is, on the one hand, only a story about these people who never existed. On the other hand, they figure forth these well-known people who include Charles II and his bastard son and his nephew and, or his brother and all sorts of other well-known people at court as well. And what Ben does, remarkably, is to 
attend so much to the private developments within the realm of the fiction that although they have a correspondence to the realm of the great that she's talking about, we tend to get more interested in the private realm than we do to the kind of allegorical translation that we're supposed to make of it to their superiors. And I take that as a sort of representative of the turning point, whereby people begin to learn that in order to talk about what's most important about humanity, you really don't need this sort of allegorical ladder at all. You don't have to talk about common life as it represents public greatness. Common life is of value itself. And that's really the birth of the novel and especially the domestic novel. I mean, the, the, the novel that I would set against Ben's love letters would be Richardson's Pamela in 1740, which is one of the most famous early novels and which has no allegorical structure whatsoever. It's about a, common, a young common woman who is so good at being a serving girl that she finally is asked to marry her, her master, which is fairly, you know, quite unusual at the time. So it's a parable of the kind of mobility that is now becoming possible in a society that is no longer stratified according to social status. But it's also a kind of a narrative that needs no translation process. It doesn't have to be about the public. It's, it's about people like its readers. And that's a good way of understanding what the novel comes into being in order to represent, namely people like you and me who are understood to represent what is most most fulfilling, most powerful about the significance of humanity. By the 18th century, Michael McKeon says, stories of private life have become an end in themselves. They no longer need to excuse themselves as allegories of some higher, more significant realm. In fact, sometimes the roles seem entirely reversed, as if the domestic were now more real than the public world in its old sense. In his book, for example, McKeon presents a whole series of paintings of the popular New Testament story contrasting the conduct of the sisters Mary and Martha when Jesus visits their home, and Mary sits at his knee listening while Martha waits on him. What's interesting about the paintings is that as the series goes on, the domestic scene increasingly overwhelms the familiar religious tableau. In one, Jesus, Mary, and Martha appear only in the background of a kitchen scene in which a large cut of meat has pride of place. And this movement in painting and literature to give priority to the private is also mirrored in architecture. The two major developments that I think need to be pointed to in terms of uh, architectural innovation are, first of all, the, the invention of the corridor or the, the hallway as, as a way of allowing people to enter into rooms that are their own private rooms without going through the private rooms of other people. As opposed to the older way of constructing rooms in succession, which would be like just one room after another, so that you have to go through all of the rooms to get to the, the final one in the series. People did that because they really didn't care about privacy, and therefore there was no need to have this kind of corridor arrangement which would allow you to maintain the privacy of your own room. An example of that is the way in which certainly stately homes of the, I don't know, the 16th and 17th centuries, or the 15th and 16th, were built in a way that had as the final, most intimate domain, what was called, among other things, the presence chamber, which was where the man and woman who were the head of the domain the reigning aristocrats or even monarchy had their bedroom and it's the presence domain insofar as people who wish to see them would uh, enter into their presence by coming through this series of rooms closer and closer to their presence and they would then have an audience with them and then would withdraw without turning their their backs upon them describing the same sort of exit as the one by which they entered. One of the rooms that was closest to the Chamber of Presence was the withdrawing room, and so named because it was a room through which you withdrew from the presence. Over time, by the 19th century anyway, the origins of that had been so lost that it becomes just the drawing room, 
and in millions of you know Victorian novels, you wonder, gee, why is this called the drawing room? Uh, do people draw there? <laughs> and and uh, the origin really lies in this totally different conception of what sort of space people need to live in in order to fulfill their their greatest desires, which include, by the 17th century, privacy. Michael McKeon has argued that the hallmark of modernity is the separation of the private from the public. The two categories increasingly oppose one another. The private is no longer just a sequestered space within the public world. It's an independent reality resting on private property and private experience. The private reader and the private letter writer, for example, are paradigmatic figures of the Enlightenment. But though the two concepts come to be opposed, they remain always related. The private can only develop within a conception of the public as a space of possibility, a virtual space in which private actors can combine in a potentially infinite variety of ways. This new conception of the public is premised in turn on the idea that the individual is prior to society, which is formed by an agreement, a contract, among these individuals. The two ideas interpenetrate, McKeon says. They come into existence at the same time. That is this new notion of the public and the idea of privacy. And they do that because they are, they're in a reciprocal relationship. The new sense of the public is necessary in order to acknowledge from now on the primacy of the individual, not just right now, but in all of the, the possible instantiations, and therefore it must be a, a virtual realm that is always accepting of new, new concatenations of individuality. And by the same token, the individual is a, is a monad that is always in separate existence, but is always, now that the separation has occurred, yearning, as it were, for some sort of collective existence. I mean, the biggest cliche we have about modernity is that there's a conflict between society and the individual, or society and the self. And that had no meaning before the 17th century, not only because the whole concept of society didn't exist, but because in a more traditional worldview, the idea of the individual is really inconceivable. Now, of course, individual people are very easily conceived, but they're always conceived in relationship to the service that they do to collectivity, whether we're talking about the state or a tribal collectivity, uh, throughout all the various manifestations of traditional sociality, the individual is always subservient in a very practical way to the needs of the community. One of the things that liberates the notion of the individual is, as one can imagine, the development of a, a sense that individuals can be self-subsistent in a way that they never could before through economic enterprise. But as I say, that's only, only one of the forces that leads to the separation out, really, of the individual from collectivity. Once this happens, though, I think almost instantaneously, certainly recognizably in the 18th century, the impulse to define this as the great modern problem and to resolve it is equally dominant in modern thinking. How can we overcome the alienation of the individual from society? Mm -hmm. So I think it's that doubleness that really has to be kept in mind as definitive of the modern dilemma. The modern dilemma, in Michael McKeon's opinion, is ongoing. There has been a tendency over the past 20 to 30 years to speak of post-modernity as if it were as distinct from the modern age as modernity had been from the Catholic Middle Ages. McKeon, I think, sees more continuity between our time and earlier phases of the modern experiment. For him, the principles that he identifies as underlying modernity are not expressed once and for all in the 17th and 18th centuries, the centuries of enlightenment, they continue to unfold. 
I think there are two impulses that continue throughout modernity and post-modernity. First of all, the impulse to continue separating. This tends to happen more and more with, say, the domestic household. Once definitively conceived as a realm of the private, it's then reconceived as partly public and partly private. In fact, the housewife in, in much discourse by the 19th century is being conceived as the governor of the house, as occupying a kind of a public role there. And insofar as she is the governor not only of the space, but of the education in morality of uh, her husband and her children, she is a governor in a very profound sense. So her realm is public, but then there are private realms within the household, which can be defined in various ways. There's no, you know, static definition given to the realms of privacy. It's, it's more the fact that private realms are infinitely subdivisible in this way that I think continues throughout modernity. As the private is subdivided, Michael McKeon argues, new realms of publicity open up within it. One only has to think of the politics of sex in our time to see what he means. Feminism and gay liberation movements have made public what was entirely private when they began. New communication technologies have been making the private public in another sense. The story that began with the invention of the private individual and the virtual public at the beginning of the modern era, he says, is not over yet. We're still in the legacy of the Enlightenment of, of the 18th century, of the first age of modernity, which by popular and vulgar thinking is associated only with the will, the will to bloodlessly divide things up and to be analytic at the expense of feeling, and the romantics had to come along to put that right. I think both of those impulses are evident within the 18th century. So the basic reciprocity that I'm talking about is set up there and is still being worked out in the modern and, and postmodern period. I think modernity is always trying, because of its very nature, to find or to find within itself innovation. Maybe the biggest difference between tradition and modernity is the way in which in the 17th and 18th centuries innovation for the first time is embraced as a positive good rather than as something to be escaped by looking back to the past and renewing the origins. And I think this futile aim to be innovative upon innovation characterizes all sorts of modern traditions that one can think of. Michael McKeon, professor of English at Rutgers University and the author of The Secret History of Domesticity. My series on the origins of the modern public will continue next time with a program on how science made publics in early modern Europe. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio. <laughs>